As we look to God's Word, if you would turn in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter uh, 24, it is a tremendous blessing to be back from visiting out west as uh, our family here uh, traveled across the country to visit our extended families, and I'm so grateful for Pastor Brad, uh, willing, willing heart and serving and preaching here, as I know uh, it is effective and a great encouragement to us as a congregation. Though we've been out uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, that does not mean that the sermon this morning is three weeks of preparation. Um, uh, I wish it had been because chapter 24 is what we're in of Matthew as we continue in this series. And Matthew chapter 24 is indeed one of the most challenging and most daunting chapters in all of Scripture. Its corresponding chapters and texts would be in Mark chapter 13 and Luke 21, uh, the Olivet Discourse. And what makes chapter 24 so challenging are not only the many details which we will see uh, and, and read this morning and hear, uh, not only because of the Old Testament prophetic reference to Daniel, of which people have varying views and interpretations of where Jesus is drawing from, but because Jesus is addressing the subject of the end times, uh, the last days. And we're well to remember. What defines the last days? The book of Hebrews is one place that we are reminded of this time. The opening words of Hebrews, the author says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Sometimes people think of the last days as those final days leading up to the return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But here in Hebrews and the Apostle Peter, also in Acts chapter 2 when he is preaching, draws from the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, which speaks about the last days. And Peter is very clear, those days have dawned in the first advent of Jesus Christ, so that the last days usually in Scripture, refers to the time between his first advent and his second coming, and so that we are living ourselves in the last days. Uh, The subject of the last days, the end times, um, can be contentious uh, among believers, uh, and it's also a subject of tremendous popularity. Uh, Popularity, I suppose, is a result of people every decade, it seems, making new predictions about the return of the Lord, or a new series of books that are published, like the Left Behind series, espousing some kind of particular view about the coming and the return of the Lord. Uh, The first day that we were out west in Washington, we stayed in a hotel. That evening, I went into a convenience store. It was a 7-Eleven. A young man approached me, and he was in need of money or food. And as we began to converse, he learned that I was a pastor And as soon as he learned that, the first question, several of them, were indeed about the last days. What do you think about the tribulation? Are you a premillennialist? What about the rapture? Uh, This is where people's minds can go very quickly in regards to the last days. And yet, as challenging as the subject is, uh, the Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss reminds us, he says, ours is a religion whose center of gravity lies beyond the grave in the world to come. And I hope that in chapter 24 and 25, this longer sermon and discourse that Jesus gives, that our eyes are lifted up, that 
that we are looking ahead at the hope that is, uh, that is ours in Jesus Christ. This Lord who rules over history, who, who, who authors history, and, and who will bring it to a glorious end. So Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 1, we'll read 1 through 35. Listen now to God's word. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he, Jesus, answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Many call these words, this discourse that Jesus gives here, the all of it uh, discourse, uh, because we're told in verse 3 that Jesus spoke them on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Of all that Jesus teaches here in this discourse, running all the way from chapter 24, verse 1, through the end of chapter 25, one of the central themes is that of time, uh, particularly the end times. Uh, We see it in several places in verse Three, the disciples ask what will be the sign of the Lord's coming and of the end of the age. He says in verse 6, that is, Jesus, do not be alarmed, this must take place. The end is not yet. And then in verse 14, with the mention of the gospel going to all of the nations, Jesus says, afterward, then the end will come. Uh, What is this end that Jesus is referring to? Uh, What's the end of the age that he is mentioning? Uh, The theme of time is certainly a focus. How this time and these last days are inaugurated, how they unfold, how God is working in and through them. They they take on a central role here in Jesus' teaching. And something I think important about time that we see throughout the Bible is that indeed time is not cyclical. Time, from a biblical and Christian worldview, is linear. It is going in one direction. God has given us patterns for our lives, cyclical kinds of patterns. Every day the sun rises and the sun sets. We have weekly patterns. We set aside a day for rest and worship, the Sabbath day. Uh, In the Old Testament, we had annual feasts that the people of God celebrated. So that life can at times, even in our daily routines and weekly routines, seem like it's going in circles. Uh, But the reality is that time is moving in one direction. It's linear. Uh, The scripture says generations come and generations go. And uh, that's partly why we sing the, the hymn, O God, our help in ages past, our help for years to come. And then it says time in that hymn. Time, like an ever-rolling stream. God's unfolding story throughout Scripture is like a stream. It's like a river. And, And it's sweeping people up into its flow and into its story of saving mercy in Jesus Christ. That's part of what Matthew has been after in the telling of this most important story. Of all the stories that could be told, this is the most important story. The gospel story. And so this is what Matthew has had in mind. But distinct about streams, or particularly rivers, is that rivers are not always smooth. Just like time, it's not always smooth. Last week, while we were spending much of our time in eastern Washington at my mother-in-law's cabin, which is on the Ponderay River, the Ponderay River uh, moves very slowly. Very slowly. There's no rapids. Uh, It's a great river to ski on, to tube on, to swim in. It's a little bit chilly. And to float down. But it's predictable. It's calm. It's safe. 
But some rivers have significant rapids. Class 5 rapids, white water. Some rivers have waterfalls. And, and the event for which Jesus is preparing his disciples here in the immediate context here that is imminently approaching is like a Niagara Falls in the course of God's redemption and his redemptive story. There is something coming that is going to be and cause a tremendous crash, a tremendous fall. And it's going to usher in, in a way, the beginning of the end. Something's coming to an end, and something new is beginning. There's a new era. The beginning of the last days, it is coming to dawn. So if you look at verse 2, we're told there that Jesus was with his disciples. They had left the temple. Luke 21 tells us in this last week of Jesus' life, he had been in the temple daily teaching. And they would make their way out to Bethany where they would stay. All leading up to the end of the week to the cross and resurrection. And on this day as they depart, making their way alongside the Mount of Olives, the disciples point out the spectacular view of the temple and its surrounding buildings. And then Jesus makes this profound statement. Do you see all these buildings and stones? He says, truly, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This event of the temple's destruction, uh, an act of God's judgment, an event that we know historically would occur in A.D. 70, that's about 40 years after our Lord's cross, 40 years after the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This event, Jesus wants them to know, would be a most profound sign of something new that had dawned. This new age that had dawned. Think about how significant the temple was in Israel's life. It was the place where God had promised to dwell with his people. This is the place where sacrifice was made for the atonement for sin for forgiveness, the place where peace uh, with God was to be experienced, worship of God. And God is declaring, Jesus is declaring, that it would no longer, these things, the presence of God, the peace of God, the forgiveness of God, would no longer be found amidst these physical stones. It would be found in another stone. The true and lasting temple, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is what Jesus declared in, in John chapter 2, early in that gospel. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. So Jesus was declaring that God would not dwell in a temple built by human hands. But a temple made alive and filled by the Spirit of God. And just as these physical stones of rock and mortar would come crashing down. The Lord would be building living stones, redeemed and built up by Jesus Christ. That, that is the era of which Jesus is saying, that this is coming. This New Testament era. And so Jesus was announcing the beginning of something new. This is the age of the Spirit, the age of worldwide mission. 
the age of the proclamation of the gospel, of the crucified and risen Christ. So, yes, he was declaring a judgment, a desolation of the temple, and yet at the very same time in this text, you hear the offer of good news in verse 14, that that the gospel of the kingdom is going to go forth throughout all the world. Yes, a new age was dawning, and yet the disciples, understandably, were filled with a certain concern. J.C. Ryle called it an evident anxiety that they certainly would have had. Jesus was declaring the whole of the temple would be uh, destroyed. And I think what an important reminder for the people of God in every generation that there may be times in our lives when we are filled with anxiety. We do not know what the future holds. We do not understand what God is doing and the unfolding purposes of His mysterious will. And yet God is at work. We see it here in the unfolding of the story. The disciples don't see it. They do not fathom fully what is happening and how time is unfolding. Remember at the beginning of of the book of Acts, they ask, is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't understand that Jesus would be crucified, risen, ascend to heaven. And yet we are living in those days, the last days. There is hope around the corner, even when we do not recognize how God is at work particularly, how important for us individually and corporately in the life of our church. Well, with this concern, the disciples ask two things. They're there in verse 3. They came to Jesus privately, and they say, tell us when. That's the first question. When will these things be? And two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Interesting, Jesus has just made the pronouncement about the temple's destruction, and their question is not only when, but they connect it to his coming and the end of the age. I just mentioned Acts chapter 1, that the disciples don't grasp how this time, how God is working in the unfolding of the ages. Indeed, the immediate context is in the pronouncement about the temple's destruction. And what's significant are not only the many warning signs. We see signs in verse 5 of false Christs that will mark these last days. Uh, Wars, famines, earthquakes in verse 6 and 7. Even being delivered up to death, he says to his disciples in verse 9. But these many signs and warnings drive home, I think, an important point for believers, even for the elect, that being a disciple of Christ does not remove from us the necessity of a very watchful, vigilant life. He mentions the elect a couple times in this discourse here, and yet he calls them to a a watchful, vigilant preparedness in their living. Jesus' message to the disciples is not sit back and relax or take it easy, pursue leisure. That is the opposite of what he is getting to throughout chapter 24 and 25. It is a message of readiness. Be prepared. Be vigilant. He says in verse 4, look, pay attention that no one leads you astray. In verse 33, he says, 
when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. If you turn to the next section, which we will examine next week, in verse 42, he says, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And verse 44, therefore you also must be ready, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So their faith, our faith, our calling does not make us immune to the need to be awake, to be ready. Not only for that last, last hour, but for our own last hour, of which none of us know. And while the immediate context here relates to the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple, I'm struck by how the New Testament authors so often view the coming of the Lord as something imminent. His near return. He, he, they often write as if his, his return is right there. Be prepared. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is near. James 5, 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Paul says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All these words written nearly two millennia ago, they were written not to tell us the day or the hour of Christ's return, but to call each sub subsequent generation to a life that is defined by alertness, vigilance, a life that is fixed upon the person of Jesus and the work of His glorious kingdom. You think about the scripture, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Psalm 25, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Is our life fixed upon Jesus? Is that what consumes us? Is that what has our attention? John Calvin commenting on this particular section in Matthew. He says, The lesson again is that no particular time is fixed, as if the last day were to follow directly upon the outcome of his predictions. For the faithful have long since experienced what we've just read, and yet Christ did not then appear. His whole purpose was to restrain the apostles with endurance when they were all too ready to fly right up to heavenly glory. In other words, redemption was not as close at hand as they made out, but was a path with many turnings and windings. And we need to remember that as we continue to pursue the Lord and He unfolds these last days. And yet while we're called to a vigilance, a watchfulness, a readiness, we're to do so with confidence because God is with us. And this is a particular point I want to emphasize. He's not only with us by His Spirit, but He is with us by His reigning power at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, there's a repeated word that we see through chapter 24, and it's the English word, coming. We see it in verse 3, 
27 and 30. The disciples want to know about the sign of Christ's coming. It's mentioned six more times in the second half or last third of of chapter 24 of Matthew. It's repeated again and again. Several of those references are the Greek word parousia, a very important word in the New Testament. And that word, parousia, can mean two primary things. One, it can refer to Christ's return, his second coming. But the word can also mean, and does take on this meaning at places, of one's appearing, merely their presence. And as Jesus certainly speaks here about his second coming, he's casting a long line all the way to the end of time, and indeed his return, it seems that he is also speaking about another presence. It seems to me. Another coming. It is a presence, a coming of power and authority at the right hand of God. He he mentions the prophet Daniel in verse 15. Theologians and commentators vary on where they believe Jesus is actually referring to in the book of Daniel. But then he goes on in verse 30, and he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When Jesus mentions this language of Son of Man and coming on the clouds of heaven, the primarily Jewish audience would likely have known the language of the prophet Daniel, and particularly of Daniel chapter 7, which we heard read earlier from Elder Sterling in the Old Testament text. But listen again to verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is language of a presence, of a coming, that is not only future, but indeed, we know in the New Testament, is now. Christ has been given authority, all authority, now, over all the nations. And he is extending his kingdom, and he is extending his gospel. Notice that the Son of Man language here is not that the Son of Man is descending, but where, where is the Son of Man going? He is ascending to the Ancient of Days. On the clouds of heaven. This is language of a king given a kingdom and a dominion over all peoples. So it seems to me this is not merely a picture of the end of history, but also a picture of the reign of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. I'm not alone in this. John Flavel, the Puritan, said this regarding Daniel 7, those very words I read. He says, this vision of Daniel's was accomplished in Christ's ascension. 
When they, the, the angels, brought him to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, who, to express his welcome to Christ, gave him glory and a kingdom. Yes, we await the second coming of our Lord. He has his return in mind as he teaches. But his presence is one that is real now. Not only by his spirit, but by his reigning power at the Father's right hand. And this is why we can rest in those words that Jesus says in verse 6. See that you are not alarmed. All of this may be happening around you. See that you are not alarmed. Do not fear. Let us pray. Gracious God, how we praise you for your word, for the assurance of your sovereignty and power over all of time, over all history. We thank you, Lord, for the rich blessing of living in these latter days, these indeed last days, this time between the inauguration of your kingdom and its consummation. I pray, Lord, that we would know the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would rest upon the glory of the gospel as summarized in your Son, our Lord's death for our sin, his resurrection and vindication, his ascension at your right hand. Lord, help us to know that coming presence of authority and power Indeed, you have put all things under his feet. And Lord, you have raised us up with him, seated us in heavenly places. And so we pray that you would again today raise us up, lift up our hearts and our eyes, that we might know the truth of your reigning and supreme power. And Lord, assure us again by your word that it might sink deep down into our hearts that we would know the assurance of your love and grace toward us in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.